I am an idiot. Thank you. Yeah, I'm quoting obviously Paul there, but it is actually what I am according to a contemporary apostle of sorts. So what am I, this idiot, going to say? What do I resist saying because there's this fear? What if I'm wrong? What if I cause trouble? But you know, I recognise this particular fear. It's the fear our spiritual enemies try to project onto me when I know that they are wetting their pants and that's a sign to push in. So, I will wear being thought of as an idiot. I will wear, although I actually really hate it, causing a fuss or having people who I really respect disagree with me, partly because I don't think I'm wrong, but mostly there's this push inside me from God that tells me that what I'm going to say is important. I want to talk about how I believe that what the Bible teaches in Genesis is literal truth, that the universe was created 6,000 years ago in six days, and I want to talk about why I think it matters. There, according to the prevailing culture, I am an idiot. But then I was already an idiot. Um, I believe Jesus rose from the dead and heals today. Believing God created the world in six literal days is just part of my greater idiocy. Yet, interestingly, this particular idiocy is one that we as Christians, we can get a little bit funny on. I mean, we're comfortable with the concept of virgin birth, which is scientific blasphemy, but, you know, we're going to sing about it at Christmas. Uh, And in this church, you know, we're okay when Robbie Dawkins says he prayed for a dead man to live, and that dead man came back to life. But we can still get uncomfortable saying or hearing someone say that evolution over long ages is incompatible with Christian theology. Why? Why do we get uncomfortable? Because, according to the world, we are idiots if we believe it. Um, I'm actually going to ask you just to turn the mic. I'm getting a lot of sound. I hear myself almost too much. All right. Because, you see, we're products of our culture more than we realise. Hearing ideas repeatedly in an environment where everybody else seems to believe them has an oppressive impact on what we think and believe. It has created a socially enforced readiness to disbelieve God within us. We live in an intimidating world system which has a vested interest in ruling out God's direct hand in creation. They want to rule it out of consideration because if God exists, if he created and rules, then there are consequences for how they and we live our lives. So ardent atheists have an agenda and it's supported by academia and popular culture which, if you haven't noticed, is pretty anti-God, in which they refuse to tolerate any challenges to evolution and long ages, including scientific ones, because they can't, in their own words, allow a divine foot in the door. And they have to be intense about it because scientists need social conditioning not to see God's hand in nature when they're faced with overwhelming evidence of design. So they try to humiliate and silence those who uh, challenge their establishment thinking. Uh, dissenters are not published. They're forced to keep quiet or risk their career, as shown in the secular documentary film, uh, Intelligence, uh, sorry, Inspelled, No Intelligence Allowed. Uh, popular physicist Brian Cox can say, so it's okay to say that if you believe the world was created 6,000 years ago, as the creationists do, then you're an idiot. There's nothing wrong in saying that because you are an idiot. Thanks, Brian. Um, People don't often get what I actually had growing up, which was resources from scientists and a dad with a master's in science calmly and rationally presenting scientific evidence consistent with literal creation. Or a science teacher who taught both views without bias. 
so that I can see that when creationism is attacked, what are attacked are straw man arguments. Arguments that serious creationists who have studied the science reject. I know that both sides often point, in fact, to the same evidence, but they interpret it differently. It's why I was not one of the hordes of young people who leave the church because of, studies say, their unanswered intellectual questions. Perhaps because it's rarely talked about in churches, people think there are no answers. Faced with this weight of culture, even though we know logically that it is possible for people, even many people, even those on TV and in textbooks and in schools and in unis, to be deceived or to lie or to have anti-God agendas, we have assumed they are truthful. We have given them authority rather than God. Despite the fact that even this morning we proclaimed him as good, unable to make a mistake or to lie. Hearing no information to the contrary, many in the church embrace the skepticism of our age and rather than questioning the world's way of thinking and the gods of this age, we turn our skepticism on God. We agree Genesis is an allegory as though God, the creator of speech and the only one actually around at creation, is not perfectly able to communicate in clear language about the creation of the universe. We assume that people today have far greater wisdom than someone from the first century, even more than Jesus, simply because we have access to more information. Even though we say Jesus is the master of the created universe and history, we don't act like we believe that he maintains and manipulates the ultimate laws of the physical universe, or is in control of atoms or quarks or bosons or particles, etc., upon which the physical cosmos depends. The Christian church has backed down and would far rather in many cases that this was treated like a non-issue. You know, believe what you like, it doesn't matter. But it does matter. We have a disbelief problem in the church. Simone actually, when she said this morning, you know, to the, the, the spirit of unbelief to get out of this place, I started to cry because evolution strikes at our confidence in God and in his word. It matters and affects society. When people believe they come from nothing and are accountable, therefore, to no creator with a direct hand in their existence, and it has a direct effect on salvation. It was the primary reason given by most of my graduating year 12 class for why they didn't believe in God. Why believe any of the Bible if you can't believe the first few verses? The big lie, in fact, to overcome with my year 12s was the very recent, around 1924, um, idea that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are poetry or allegory. Honestly, I actually want to throw things when I hear this. I want to throw Hebrew grammar books. Uh, that's what I want to throw. In fact, I want to throw major Hebrew scholars because they all say Genesis 1 to 11 has the grammar of historical narrative and uses no poetic devices. It has the same literary style as Genesis 12 to 50, which nobody's disputing is historical narrative. It has indicators of historical sequence. There's this funky thing called the wa consecutive. Uh, it has trademarks of historical narrative, such as accusative particles, whereas parallelisms, which are characteristic of Hebrew poetry, are absent. Now, I get you're probably not following accusative particles, etc., but even on our own, we can see that the language in Genesis is written more like an historical report and not poetry, even if it's in funny Bible font and columns. 
because the language devices they use are different. So in poetry, we expect devices like, you know, similes. Um, God, your righteousness is like the mighty mountains. But Genesis reads like a report. This happened and then this happened. You know, God created light and separated light from darkness. There was morning and evening and the first day. Uh, God separated the waters above and below and made the sky. And there was a morning and an evening and a second day. And, and it refers to specific people and events and times. Uh, when Adam was 130 years old, he had a son who was like him and named him Seth and so forth. Less than a hundred years ago, God was regarded as literal creator. We live in a time which is unusual in the 6,000 years of recorded history. And people usually say, oh, well, you know, science has proven otherwise. Yeah, let's check that out. Science, as the founder of the scientific method, Francis Bacon, uh, described it, is the making of inferences on the basis of observations to create a theory which is then tested and the proof or disproof leads to knowledge. Because Bacon believed a god of order created an orderly, orderly, tightly constrained physical world where causality and inductions are possible. Whereas atheists have actually got no philosophical justification for belief in an orderly universe. Most people think science follows the evidence wherever it leads and have this romantic idea that scientists are rational, objective, interchangeable robots. But that even as the late atheist Stephen Jay Gould said, is a myth. It is impossible, no matter how hard we try for, and how hard scientists try, to com avoid completely letting their worldview colour their interpretation of facts. So it's important to understand that observations, such as, you know, trees get bigger over time, they don't speak for themselves, they're interpreted within a framework. So those who are evolutionists and those who are creationists, they look at the same evidence, but they interpret it differently. So scientists with an evolutionary framework seek to understand the world without any divine intervention. Scientists who are biblical creationists interpret the same facts and observations but within the framework outlined in Genesis 1 to 11. I know this is heavy, but stay with me. It's foundational stuff. Good. Another aspect of science that it's important to understand is the difference between origin science and historical, sorry, origin science and operational science. So operational science is what I described already. Uh, it deals with repeatable, observable processes in the present. It helps us understand the world. It's led to our improvements in the quality of life. And it is a fact that the founders of operational science were motivated by their belief that the universe was made by a rational creator who upholds his creation in a regular, repeatable way as they made great scientific advances. Uh, if you want more about this, uh, the book that made your world by Vishnul Magnalwadi is, is really good. Uh, he actually talks about how belief in God made science possible. Origin science, in contrast, helps us make educated guesses about origins in the past. So literal biblical creation fits here, and so does evolution and Big Bang theories, because they're speculations about the unobservable and unrepeatable past. So although I believe that God created the world six, in six days, 6,000 years ago, and find a great deal of evidence consistent with that, there is nothing in nature to lead us to that absolute truth. It's an interpretation based on a biblical framework and relying primarily on the only witness who was there, God. But similarly, there is nothing in nature to lead us to the absolute truth that billions of years ago there was nothing which exploded, starting off over long ages, the existence of everything, including the creation of life. It is an interpretation based on what is seen in the present and a God didn't do it framework. So science, which I love, is not something I fear. 
After all, I mean, God made the fundamental laws of the universe, which science observes and describes and experiments with. It is obedient to him and it speaks about him. Now, I realise for a Sunday morning, this has been pretty technical so far. You know, I've sort of science, science, billions, world, science, exploded, uh, interpret, uh, don't fear, science, you know. But I really think it's important groundwork. Um, and I actually think you're all actually capable of following it or I wouldn't have gone through it. But there will be a test later. No, just a quiz. For the jive up kids, you know, you guys, can't you see them? They're taking notes. Actually, it's a worksheet, which includes sermon bingo. So if they yell out, I will throw things at them, so duck. All right. All right, so this is a sermon, so, you know, I probably should open the Bible. So good idea right now, if you have your Bible, to open to Genesis 1. Great to see it there. Um, so open to Genesis, or I will judge you like the plagues of Egypt, which I can actually say in church and you actually get the joke, whereas in school they're like, I don't understand what you're saying. All right. All right. So creationists, they base their science on the biblical framework of history, which says God is real and has provided lots of information about how and when he performed special acts of design. And as I mentioned, Genesis provides a number of Hebrew grammatical features that show it was intended to teach a straightforward history of the world from its creation. Genesis chapter 1, backed up by the rest of scripture, unambiguously teaches that. The heavens, the earth, and everything in them were created in six consecutive normal days, the same as those of our work week. Uh, if you read Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11, God commands a day of rest after six days of work because he says, In six days I, the Lord, made the earth, the sky, and everything in them, but on the seventh day I rested. I'm just going to have a quick drink. And Hebrews 11.3 confirms that everything was made from what is not seen by the word of God. You know, he spoke and there was light. Uh, and Jeremiah 33 verses 19 and 25 support that God made consistent time and natural laws at this point. So, during creation week, about 6,000 years ago, and I will unpack that date later, uh, God created distinct kinds of creatures. Uh, that's said in verse 20, for example. Ending in verse 26 with mankind being created in God's image on the sixth day. From the dust, as chapter 2 tells us. Uh, verse 7, coming alive when God breathed the breath of life into him. Uh, this is also seen in Mark uh, 10, verse 6, where Jesus said that mankind was there from the beginning of creation. The Bible's foundational chapter is clear that everything began as good, very good. Uh, in verse 31, as man and woman are created. And then shows in chapter 3 how that very good is broken when death begins with the fall in verse 21. Adam's sinning and bringing, bringing physical death to the world is reinforced in Romans and also in 1 Corinthians. So Romans uh, chapter 5 verse 12. Sin came into the world through one man and his sin brought death with it. As a result, death spread to the whole human race because everyone has sinned. Verse 14. But from the time of Adam, death ruled over all mankind even those who did not sin in the same way Adam did when he disobeyed God's command. And I'll unpack later the important theology about one historical real Adam to one historical real Jesus. Verse 17, it is true that through the sin of one man, death began to rule because of that one man, but how much greater is the result of what was done by the one man, Jesus Christ? So since man is the federal head of creation, the whole of creation is cursed. Uh, Genesis 3.17, uh, sorry, 3.17, reinforced in Romans 8.20-21, which included death to animals. 
uh, in Genesis 3.21. And later, the end in Genesis 9.3 of the original vegetarian diet for both animals and humans. That's Genesis uh, 1.29. So, sin brought death and mutations into the world. By mutations, I mean a loss of information. About 1,500 years later, Genesis 5 gives us that timeline, and uh, chapter 7, verses 6 and 11 gives us a date, which is the 17th day of the second month, because I like to always include dates in my poetry. Um, God judged the world by a globe-covering flood. Uh, Genesis 7, 19 to 20, which Jesus and Peter compared with the coming judgment. Uh, Luke 17, 26 to 27, as it was in the days of Noah, etc., etc., up to the very last very day when Noah went into the boat, the flood came and killed them all. Uh, at 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 7, in the last days, uh, verse 5 here, they purposely ignore the fact that long ago God gave a command and the heavens and the earth were created. Uh, the earth was formed out of water and by water, and it was also by water, the water of the flood, that the old world was destroyed. This destroyed all the land vertebrates, animals, and people not on the ocean liner-sized ark. Now, for which dimensions are given in Genesis 6, uh, verses 15 to 16, because, you know, all allegories include very specific dimensions. Um, 2 Peter 2, verse 5, also says specifically that there was only Noah and seven other people, as per Genesis 7, verse 13. The catastrophic upheaval the flood caused on the earth, the continents dropping, the seabeds rising, which interestingly we actually saw in New Zealand following the recent earthquake, and then reversing, is re reflected in the geological record, which seems to suit catastrophic processes and rapid burial of fossils rather than gradual geological processes. Uh, if you want inf more information there, check out creation.com. Uh, then click on their topics button and then click on flood, or you can read the book Flood by Design by Michael Ord. So the, the, the flood produced most of the world's fossils, but as I've said, two of every kind of land vertebrate, seven of the few clean ones and birds, um, that's chapter seven, verses two and three, and eight people were rescued on the ark. Now, if you're interested, because it's actually kind of cool, um, check out some of the full-sized arcs that have been made around the world. Um, keep in mind also, it was kind. So it was two felines, it wasn't you know, cats and tigers and cheetahs and saber-toothed tigers. Um, and they're probably not all full-grown, although I actually only noticed this this week, that chapter 8, verse 19, makes it clear that they were having animal babies on the ark, which I think is really cute. Um, anyway, uh, after they landed on the mountains of Ar Ararat, which is chapter 8, uh, verse 4, which, by the way, geographically actually matches the dispersion of animals and people around the world, the ark animals migrated and diversified. That's chapter 8, verse 17, adapting to different environments, including rapid speciation. So from two canines, you get dogs and wolves, etc. Now, just because I'm going to, I have referred to kinds, I'm just going to explain quickly. It's not perfect. Kinds are then diversifies into species, diversifies into breeds, but they're all one kind. They can interbreed. And there's basically what's happening from, you know, kind down to, to um, species is loss of information. All right. So mankind, being the great people that we are, disobeyed God's command to spread and repopulate the earth. So a hundred years or so later, and the timelines are in chapter 10, verse 25, and chapter 11, verse 16, God then judged the people by confusing their language at Babel. That's chapter 11. Then people migrated. Um, that's verses 8 and 9. Uh, Paul, in Acts 17, verses 24 to 28, says that from one man, God made all the races and made them live throughout the earth. And what we know about languages actually matches a sudden arrival of several distinct root languages at about that time. So that's the biblical framework. 
Um, and I've already mentioned several references to show that it's taken as history throughout the Bible. Uh, also by the disciples in Acts 4.24, by Paul in Acts 17, verses 24 to 28, uh, Peter in 2 Peter, uh, Nehemiah in Nehemiah 9.6, uh, Jeremiah chapter 33, uh, Isaiah chapter 45, and so on. But as well as that, numerous scientists also find that their facts and, and observations about the physical world virtually always make better sense when interpreted within this framework. So what they see in the physical world matches what scripture teaches. And, um, and if you want to, you might want to look at how many other cultures, uh, creation and flood stories, have multitudes of similarities, like eerily similar, with that of the Bible. And reflect on the fact that kind of that's what you would expect happening to the information as people spread out across the globe over time. There'll be some things that we, you know, really accurate and other things that, you know, people's memories got, um, you know, confused and they changed. Now, despite being the Bible being our, you know, our special book, um, we're not very good at reading it, and I know I've already done a sermon about that. Um, and even though what I just went through is like the very start of the book, uh, I suspect there were plenty of details that you might have struggled to outline, you know, if I'd asked you to. Not that I will, there is no test, except for you guys. They're watching me, this is good. All right. But you probably might, because of repeated exposure, do a bit better with evolution. You might say, the naturalistic, no-God-needed framework, which is proclaimed today, says that uh, what we see in the universe and the Earth took long ages to be like it is now. Uh, millions of years of creatures breeding different organisms to themselves, thus through uh, incremental changes and addition of new information, or as popularly is called mistakes, to get from goo to you. But here's the thing. We definitely see changes through mutation, which is loss of information, but that's not evolution. Evolution is the gaining of new information to transform one organism into another, a completely new type of organism. And that has not yet been observed. A lot of the time, natural selection is called evolution. But natural selection is the sorting and loss of genetic information, so the breeding of dogs, or mosquitoes developing resistance to DDT over 40 years. It's not evolution because the mosquito is still a mosquito. The dog is still a dog. It hasn't turned into anything else. It's just selected info from what it already had. Now, uh, you might say, well, you know, look, it started in the right direction. Information is being sorted. Give it a million years. But it isn't in the right direction. What we keep observing, what we only observe, is loss of information. Mutations cause harm, they build impaired offspring because they only eliminate traits. They can't produce new information, so they don't build complexity. No matter how numerous they may be or how much time they're given, mutations don't cause the evolution of new organisms. As I said before, the gain of new information to transform one organism into a completely new organism has not yet been observed. But loss has. Bad news, people. We are all subject to genetic entropy. We humans are co accumulating copying mistakes, mutations, at a rate of about 60 to 100 per person per generation. So that's why Adam and Eve, starting from very good, had children who would have married each other. Why Abram could marry his half-sister Sarai, whereas in Leviticus, 500 years after Abram, and a further increase of mutations, God says, close relatives can't marry anymore. Thankfully. Ugh. Um, Dr. John Sanford is a uh, guy who invented the gene gun, 
And he talks about his disbelief as a new Christian at the long lives given in Genesis, 930 years and so forth, you know, thinking they were kind of random and pulled out of the air. But, you know, he's a scientist, so he plotted the ages of Noah's descendants on a graph. Uh, you can see it up there, the distribution of age spans you can see up there. Uh, Shem, Noah's son, is the first diamond. He realised that there is scientific data in scripture because the lifespans decreased in what biologists apparently instantly recognise as a biological decay curve so that the numbers weren't crazy or random but decaying in a mathematically predictable manner reflecting the rapid genetic decay biologists would expect. Um, now I find that really interesting but I'm a nerd. You might not be science nerds and that's okay because the real problem with evolution for Christians is back in the Bible. And I know some of you are Bible nerds. And I'm actually going to take a drink at this point because I can hear my voice going, eh. All right. Just sink in the information. Have a pause. All right. You see, no matter what some may say, including some fairly deceptive Christian groups like Biologos, God using evolution is not logical theologically with Christianity. It doesn't fit with what is said throughout the Bible, New and Old Testaments. Like a bad blind date, it is not compatible. So, how do we get to thinking it might be? Well, as I've mentioned already, historically, people trusted what the Bible said. And it's often presented that, you know, as they got further evidence, uh, then we got further evidence, and now we know everything happened differently. But that isn't the case. About the late 1700s, people who were already anti-God began with dismissing the Bible's historical records. They then went and looked for evidence to support their view that God wasn't real. Now, they didn't find evidence in the rocks and fossils because, as I've explained, scientific facts are neutral. What they presented was interpretation of rocks and fossils from their anti-God framework. So, instead of layers um, of fossils laid down rapidly in a worldwide flood, which speaks of judgment in our need of a saviour, they had to find another way to interpret it that didn't involve God, and that was through long ages. And this got taken up and promoted by other people with an anti-God agenda. Uh, in this long age view, fossils were being laid down before man appeared, and so the death and suffering which they display could not have been the result of man's fall, and that's important. Because this then allowed those who were anti-God to claim the Bible's origins account was a once-upon-a-time once myth with some theological lessons, but saying absolutely nothing about real events in time and space. If that is the case, since God created a world of death and suffering over billions of years, he cannot be good. And so they were able to sow doubt into people about the goodness of God. Moreover, they could claim that the gospel is null and void because the New Testament, as I've alluded to, repeatedly links the reason for Jesus' death and resurrection to Adam's sin and the origin of death in Genesis. So you've got 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 21. For just as death came by the means of a man, in the same way the rising from death comes by, the mean, from, by means of a man. For just as all people die because of their union with Adam, in the same way all will be raised to life because of their union with Christ. You see, if there was no real Adam, then there's no need for a real Christ. There is no need for Jesus to really go to the cross. Uh, Romans 5, uh, verses 18 to 19. So, then, as the one sin condemned all mankind, in the same way, the one righteous act sets all mankind free and gives them life. 
And just as all people were made sinners as a result of the disobedience of one man, in the same way, they will all be put right with God as the result of the obedience of one man. It also means that Jesus erred in believing in a global flood, in believing in a literal Adam and Eve, as he said in Mark 10:6. But at the beginning, at the time of creation, God made them male and female, as the scripture said. Uh, other people in the New Testament that refer to Genesis as recording real events are therefore also wrong, such as Peter in 2 Peter 3, where he spoke of creation and the flood, or Paul in 2 Corinthians 11.3 about Satan deceiving Eve, or when he based doctrine about male and female roles in 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy on the historical order of creation in Genesis 2. Furthermore, the doctrine, sorry, furthermore, long ages undermines the doctrine of the end times. Why would there need to be a new heavens and a new earth if the fall is just a story that had no real effect on corrupting the created order, as per Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22? It undermines and calls into the question the logic of the whole Bible and of Christianity at every turn. The one that really sticks for me is this. Millions of years of evolution demands millions of years of death as creatures die and evolve before we get into their evolution as humans. Why would God call millions of years of death and suffering very good? And there are other incompatibilities. I mean, why would Adam and Eve need the fruit of knowledge of good and evil when the evil of death was present into their evolution as humans? Uh, why would an already living primate need to be created from the dust and breathed into to come alive? Why would Paul say in Romans 5 three times that death began when Adam sinned? Such incompatibilities undermine people's ability to understand any of the Bible or trust what they believe, which is historically what happened, the great falling away from Christianity in the West. So evolution through long ages and the Bible, they aren't compatible. But the positive is that the Bible is consistent with itself regarding what is said in Genesis, as I showed when I went through the framework earlier. And the Bible is not only consistent about Genesis, but right from the start, it treats it as real history, recording events and people specifically. Now, you know those lists of names of who gave birth to who, genealogies, which we kind of skip over, um, they actually help us locate events in time. And the Bible is so consistently re reliable regarding these events and historical figures that it is a key document used by archaeologists to check the date of things. Um, the book Evidence for the Bible by Anderson and Edwards is a really good tool there. But one cool thing genealogies do, and I do think it's cool, is it lets you and me work out when Adam was created and the world began. Now, back when I was younger, I have done the maths during boring sermons, and you're welcome to do so now. But there's actually an example up on the screen. Uh, the chapters that are really helpful are chapter 5, because that goes from Adam to Noah, and chapter 11, that's Noah to Abraham, which brings us to about 1900 BC, because they have lists. You know, when Adam was 130 years old, he had a son like him named Seth, so Seth born the year 130. Uh, when Seth was 105, he had a son Enosh, so Enosh is born in the year, put 130 to 105, 235. Uh, the AM you see up there is Anno Mundi, it just means first year of the world. Um, after that, you kind of have to flick through the chapters looking for all the ages when sons were born to get to Moses, whom historians uh, don't dispute, was 1250 BC. Now, Bishop Usher, who compiled the history of the world from the beginning of creation, 
I have it here, uh, using a variety of secular and biblical sources, calculated that it all began 4,004 years before Christ. Now, he may be slightly off. Uh, other scholars say he's pretty close, though. And my admittedly rough maths comes out at much the same. I remember actually being really excited in church, and at that time, that was pretty unusual. Um, when I first did the maths on this, so, you know, I was a teenager, I was the same age as these guys. I was like, wow, it all it makes sense. And it was such a boost to my faith. Now, you know, I've kind of realised when I got to this point writing that I've referred to English and I've referred to maths and I've referred to history. So my apologies to anyone who thought they were on school holidays because uh, now I'm going to look at some science. It's a myth to say that the only critics of evolution are religious. In fact, as a science, even evolution's, evolution's firmest supporters have doubts. There are many established scholars, including the 800 or so who have signed the Statement of Dissent from Darwin, who object to evolution on a purely scientific basis, even though they face great repression and even active persecution from the scientific community. Some of these key objections raised by non-biblical groups are, in genetics, how, as I've explained already, mutations cause harm and don't build complexity or produce new information. Uh, in biochemistry, that unguided, random processes required by evolution cannot produce the incredible complexity of our cells. You may have heard this before, but the, they're apparently like miniature factories, but dwarfing the complexity and efficiency of anything produced by humans, and we are filled with them. Our cells use miniature circuits, motors, feedback loops, encoded language, and even error-checking machinery to, to decode and repair our DNA. As the Bible teaches, we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Scientists admit no evolution of biochemicals has been recorded, only wishful speculation. You may have heard the uh, irreducible complexity argument. What that means is that living things have fantastically intricate creatures at the anatomical, cellular and molecular levels that could not function if they were any less complex or sophisticated, so, you know, if any pieces were missing. And because of this, and because the pieces have no value except as part of a whole, evolution can't explain how they came to exist. Uh, you've got paleontology. Uh, Darwin predicted that the fossil record would show numerous transitional fossils. That's creatures becoming new creatures. But even 140 years later, all we have are a handful of disputable examples. And it's usually just a piece of bone, like a, they sort of extrapolate a whole thing from. To quote the Discovery Institute, discovery.org, the, the, foss the fossil record's overall pattern is one of abrupt explosions of new biological forms, fully formed, not connected by a series of intermediates, and with no fossils yet discovered that form a transition. The explosion of rapid speciation, in fact, fits with what would be expected following the flood. I mean, we do have fossils, we have loads, and they show signs of rapid burial, which is required to preserve a creature before it decomposes, which suits the flood. And they are of creatures who are just like the ones we see today. Uh, another one from paleontology. How is it possible that paleontologist Mary Schweitzer has found soft tissue and blood cells in dinosaur fossils that are supposed to be millions of years old? Why have many cultures, including the Bible and Job 40 and other places, described and drawn interactions with dinosaur or dragon-like creatures when they're supposed to be separated in time by eons? Uh, Dragons or Dinosaurs by Derek Isaacs is a great book. Um, I thoroughly recommend reading it. All right. 
about some evidence for uh, 6,000 years, which refutes long ages. All right, population. People say we live in a crowded world, but my friends, the world is not crowded enough. Uh, if you take the rate of population increase and project backwards, you find it only takes about four and a half thousand years, which interestingly is when the flood occurred, to get to the current figure of seven billion with a starting point of eight people. And that's using conservative assumptions about growth rate, which I do have the maths on, but I won't go into. Um, even if you take one one hundredth of a percent in growth rate, which is far less than the likely three percent, over a million years, uh, the current favoured time is said to be one to two million years since the first human, you get 10 to the power of 43 people, that's 10, followed by 43 zeros. I don't even know what we call that. Um, and we'd have a square metre of Earth each. Uh, seven followed by nine zeros, I think I have the maths right on that one, I'm not as confident there. Um, that's what we have now, seven billion people. And also, where are the bodies? I mean, even if the population growth was crazy slow or terrible plagues wiped people out, according to the maths, we'd still be knee-deep in bones. Where are all the bodies of the dead people? It was, it was late at night when I was working on that. All right. All right, geology. Uh, the oceans are salty, but they ain't salty enough. So how do we get salt in the oceans? Rain washes down the mountains and dissolves salt into the sea, and so gradually our oceans are getting saltier. Now, if millions and billions of years had passed, our sea, mathematically, would be too salty for life. I've been to the Dead Sea, and it is toxic. Like, my skin was like, when I was in that water, and I just wanted to wash it straight off because uh, of its high salt content. So even if the sea started as fresh water, which is not what anybody says, and frankly would have all sucked for all the uh, saltwater fish, it would take a maximum of 60 million years to get to the current saltiness, which is a lot, but is a lot less than 4.5 billion. And no one has come up with a mechanism to show how could salt could have been taken out of the oceans. Whereas, if we start salty 6,000 years ago and get a bit saltier, it fits. Ah, uh, the moon. For time, I'm actually going to skip the maths on this one. The moon is receding from the Earth at four centimetres a year currently, but actually increases every year. So after billions of years, the moon shouldn't even be in sight. Ah, uh, the Earth's magnetic field. Its strength is decaying at 5% each century. Now, even 10,000 years ago, its strength at those rates would have been enough to melt the planet. Now, it may not have been constant. That's a thing about anything that anybody says about origin science. We weren't there, and we can't assume that things have always happened the same way they do now. Now, look, you can find these and lots of others, uh, the lack of helium in our atmosphere, uh, the persistence of spiral galaxies, the low number of type 2 supernovas in our galaxy, and absolutely no type 3 supernovas, uh, the existence of uh, short period comets, and lots and lots of others at creation.com in every field of science you want to name. Uh, Discovery.com is also good, but it is intelligence design based and it's not biblical. So although it uses a lot of the same evidence, it's not about literal creationism. Now guess what? You're living in a fairy tale. I'm an idiot and you're living in a fairy tale. It's been a great morning. Uh, <laughs> because you live on a Goldilocks planet. You may have heard this before, which is so called because it is just right. Now, some of my material here is from a guy called Eric Metaxas. I got to hear him speak earlier this year, and he is amazing. Uh, and he wrote a Wall Street Journal article, which is Wall Street Journal's most, like, internet-spiked, whatever you call it, article ever. Uh, it's called Science Increasingly Makes the Case for God. 
So Metaxas talked about the odds of life existing on another planet growing ever longer. Basically, in 1966, atheist Carl Sagan had said that there were two important criteria for a planet to support life. Today, there are over 200, and the parameters keep growing. So initially, with only two parameters, two criteria to support life, astronomers thought there would be a septillion, which, if you didn't know, is one followed by 24 zeros, uh, planets capable of supporting life. As the number of parameters grew, that number dropped to zero and kept going the other way. In other words, the odds turned against any planet in the universe supporting life, including this one. Probability says we shouldn't be here. Because you see, every single one of the parameters must be perfectly met or the whole thing falls apart. So, you know, you might be interested about what some of these parameters are that make us a Goldilocks planet. I was, so I'm going to share them. Uh, a moon large enough and close enough to partially protect the Earth from meteorites and comets and asteroids. I'd actually never thought of this way, but every crater we see up on the moon's surface represents an object that might otherwise have impacted the Earth. Uh, other giant planets, you actually have to have those in your solar system. So Jupiter and Saturn, they exert massive gravitational influence in the solar system and help sort of sweep potentially dangerous objects from the solar system. Um, an atmosphere is something else you need. It's another line of defence because it burns up objects so that few reach the ground, if any have frankly made it that far. Um, we need a powerful magnetic field which protects this atmosphere from being lost, but not so strong that it fries our spines. And there are lots of others. Uh, the planet has to orbit the sun in the habitable zone because that's where water, liquid water, essential for life can exist. You know, they've only found a handful of planets in a habitable zone. Uh, you need a stable host star so the habitable zone isn't eliminated. Now, we often sort of say, oh, we've got this really boring sun. Actually, our sun is exceptionally stable and it is in the top 10% in our galaxy for providing energy. Um, it also has to be a lone star. Apparently, these are unusual. I didn't know that because two or more could mean wide temperature variations or a chaotic orbit. Now, there's more. That wasn't enough. The fine-tuning for life to exist on a planet is nothing compared with the fine-tuning required for the universe to exist at all. For example, and I'm going to quote now, astrophysicists know, now know that the values of the four fundamental forces, gravity, the electromagnetic force, and the strong and weak nuclear forces, yeah, I hadn't heard of them either, uh, were determined less than a millionth of a second after the universe began. Alter any one value and the universe could not exist. If a ratio was off by the tiniest fraction of the tiniest fraction, then existence is impossible. Multiply that single parameter by all the other necessary conditions, and the odds against the universe existing are so heart-stoppingly astronomical that the notion that it all just happened defies common sense. Fred Hoyle, the astronomer who coined the term Big Bang, said his atheism was greatly shaken at these developments. He later wrote, that a common sense interpretation of the facts suggests that a super intellect has monkeyed with the physics as well as with the chemistry and biology. The numbers one calculates from the facts seem to me so overwhelming as to put this conclusion almost beyond question. The creation of the universe is one of the greatest miracles of all time and it points to someone beyond itself. The heavens actually do declare the glory of God. Charles Spurgeon said, does not all nature around me praise God? If I were silent, I should be an exception to the universe. Does not the thunder praise him as it rolls like drums in the march of the God of armies? Do not the mountains praise him when the woods upon their summits wave in adoration? Sorry, I get emotional on this one. 
Does not the lightning write his name in letters of fire? Has not the whole earth a voice? And shall I, can I, silent be? But the devil wants us to be silent about this. Romans chapter 1, starting in verse 18, talks about the link between beliefs about creation and the effect upon society. It says, and I'm going to paraphrase here, that God's angry about the sin of people whose evil ways prevent the truth from being known. That what can be known about God is plain to them because God made it plain. Ever since God created the world, what he's like, his power, his divine nature is clearly seen in all the things God has made. So if God made a broken millions of years before we get to humans' world, it says he's a God of death and suffering. But Genesis creation teaches he is powerful, he is good, and he is redemptive. Romans continues, they don't give God the honour that belongs to him as creator, nor do they thank him. Instead, their thoughts have become complete nonsense. Richard Dawkins, the most famous and respected atheist in the world, has stated that the origins of life could be the seeding of our planet by aliens but he doesn't know where the aliens originated from. Instead of worshipping the immortal God, they worship images made to look like mortal man or animals or birds or reptiles. Now, I may be drawing a long bow here, but are the pictures that are drawn in our textbooks speculating about as yet unfound transitional forms, are they our idols? Are they what we believe rather than God? They exchange the truth about God for a lie. They worship and serve what God has created instead of the creator himself. And this leads, in verse 24 onwards, to all kinds of sexual corruption, and in verse 28 onwards towards moral corruption. Because, as it says, these people refuse to keep in mind the true knowledge about God, which he's just said is found in creation. He's given them over to corrupt minds, so that they do things they shouldn't do. They're filled with all kinds of evil, wickedness, greed, jealousy, murder, fighting, deceit, malice, gossip, hateful to God, insolent, proud, thinking of ways to do evil. They disobey their parents. They don't keep their promises or have a conscience. They show no kindness or pity. The Bible seems to be saying that this is the fruit of saying creation didn't need God and ignoring the ample evidence. And we see it in our culture. Whereas we do try to understand what creation teaches about God, we learn we're created in his image So human life is sacred and we treat others like they have worth. We learn that we are the stewards of creation, so we care for the environment. We learn God made ordered natural laws, so we will try and understand them. Because we learn the world was created as very good and now broken, we understand our world and ourselves. And learning creation is to be redeemed, we want to participate in that. And we will have confidence confidence and peace and a love of God Because a God powerful enough to create from scratch in six days, though it could have taken him a second if he wanted to, a fully functional, awesome world is a God with no limit to the goodness of his intentions or his power to carry them out. Quoting Dallas Willard there. It means the Bible is God's reliable word and that it will never fail from the beginning to the end of time. We can have peace. We can have confidence. Evolution sows doubt in believers and is an obstacle for many unbelievers to belief in God. People have doubts about Jesus and Christianity because of evolution, and we should thoughtfully address those questions. Now, we don't need to have all the answers at our fingertips. I don't. Right now I do, but most of the time I don't. Um, But we do need to have a basis of understanding that there are answers that we can find. 
uh, David Catchpool, who speaks about this in regards to evangelism, says, look, you might say Genesis is not an issue. Well, it was an issue for me, and maybe only one, but the good shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one, and it was more and it is more than 1% of people for whom this is an issue, i.e. something they point to and say, this is why I don't believe. In regards to creation evangelism, people might want to point to the Bible and say, well, the disciples didn't talk about creation. But when talking to the Jews, they didn't need to because the Jews already had the foundation of the Old Testament and believed creation. For them, as 1 Corinthians 1 verse 23 says, the cross is their stumbling block, as you can see in the cartoon I've got up there. But for the Greeks, who hadn't travelled the road of the Jews, which included creation, the cross is just foolishness, just as it is to people today. They just laugh at it. So in talking to the Greeks, a pagan culture very like ours, which didn't have creation taught to them, Paul did talk about creation. In fact, he began with it and he used it as the foundation of his evangelism in Acts 17, verses 24 to 27. And in verses 32 to 33, we see the responses. Some sneered. Some wanted to hear more, and some of that group believed. I'll take that. So to end, hopefully the scientific evidences I've listed are helpful. So if you're already a creationist, hopefully you're encouraged. If you're not, well, hopefully they have been helpful and give you something to think about. After all, we aren't called to believe blindly, but we are nevertheless supposed to trust God even without them. And the Bible record reveals that God rewards those who trust his word, especially against a hostile, disbelieving culture. Are we embarrassed by talk of 6,000 years of being idiots, as I said at the beginning? Jesus says not to be ashamed of him or the gospel, for it is the good news to save the world. And the gospel is founded in a real history of Genesis, a real Adam, and a real need for a real Jesus. So maybe do a bit of your own research with the sources I've mentioned. Um, I've also quoted and paraphrased Refuting Evolution by Safati, uh, Answers to the Four Big Questions by Batten, Catchpool's Creation Evangelism, and Willard's The Divine Conspiracy. But especially check out creation.com. It's fantastic. Explore what numerous PhD scientists can tell you about how science confirms the biblical worldview from verse 1. Spiritually, I had to think about, you know, what swirls around these issues of evolution or literal creation. Things that came up for me were our trust in God. Who have we given our authority to? Our doubts about God. Maybe even our disbelief. Our peace. Uh, perhaps things people have said to us. Our fear of what other people might think. Doubts about our own intelligence. Perhaps other people are smarter than me. And complacency, the desire to avoid disagreement. I struggle with these. So if you want prayer for any of those things or prayer for anything else, uh, feel free to come down the front.